We turn in God's inspired word this morning to Ephesians chapter 6. The last chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. Ephesians 6, we begin reading at verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that she may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God that she may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints and for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak, but that ye also may know my affairs and how I do. Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, shall make known to you all things whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that ye might know our affairs and that he might comfort your heart. Peace be to the brethren, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. We consider today the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer, its sixth petition, and its conclusion, looking then at Lord's Day 52 of our Heidelberg Catechism with its three questions and answers, 127 through 129. Which is the sixth petition? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That is, since we are so weak in ourselves that we cannot stand a moment And beside this, since our mortal enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh, cease not to assault us, do thou therefore preserve and strengthen us by the power of thy Holy Spirit, that we may not be overcome in this spiritual warfare, but constantly and strenuously may resist our foes till at last we obtain a complete victory. How dost thou conclude thy prayer? For thine is the kingdom and the power 
and the glory forever. That is, all these we ask of thee, because thou, being our King and Almighty, art willing and able to give us all good. And all this we pray for, that thereby not we, but thy holy name may be glorified forever. What does the word amen signify? Amen signifies it shall truly and certainly be. For my prayer is more assuredly heard of God than I feel in my heart that I desire these things of him. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, when Jesus taught us to pray and deliver and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, he was at the same time reminding us of the very nature of the Christian life in the midst of this world. It's a life in which our mortal enemies, the devil, the world, and our own sinful flesh, cease not to assault us. And the text that we will consider this evening, God willing, from 1 John 5, verses 4 and 5, will call it our attention to the same spiritual reality, but at the same time reminding us of the victory that is ours in Jesus Christ. But we are conquerors only in Christ by the faith connection with him. And for the difficulty of the battle, Jesus taught us this sixth petition, reminding us of our dependence upon our Heavenly Father, also when it comes to our sanctification and our preservation. We are not so quick to understand the ferocity of the battle. Satan is often very subtle in his attacks. There's a reason he's called the devil, the deceiver. We have this inclination to downplay the seriousness of sin, of our own sin. We hear the call to repentance repeatedly, but we close our ears to it when it presses too close to home. We're always excusing ourselves. You you recognize, we recognize sin is serious. So serious it demanded the death of Jesus Christ in our place as propitiation, payment for our sin. We know that it took his death to save us, so we know that sin is something serious. And having been given a spiritual understanding, we received the instruction last Lord's Day and recognize the need for the prayer for forgiveness. That means we acknowledge the truth that our sinful nature still affects us in everything we do, and therefore we need forgiveness every day because, and also as we live with fellow sinners, as we also resolve from the heart to forgive our neighbor. But the satanic attacks continue upon us. And we are engaged in this daily battle. 
against the devil, the world, and our own sinful flesh. So Jesus taught us to pray for our daily sanctification. We consider together the sixth petition under the theme praying for the spirit of holiness. The idea of the theme is found in the passage that we read, Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 24, where we are commanded to put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That requires having the mind of the Spirit. That requires the work of the Spirit. That requires, as we read in Ephesians 6, verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. So as we treat this petition under the theme, praying for the spirit of holiness, we consider first of all the request, secondly the urgency, and finally the confidence. The request implies a fear of falling. The request, therefore, comes from a deep love for God and a fear of doing anything that would offend him. Let's not forget that prayer offered from the heart by faith is an expression of our thankfulness to God and the expression of our knowledge of our complete dependence upon him. It's quite possible to voice the words of prayer without having one's heart in it. It's possible to pray this sixth petition and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil while one's true desire is, but not yet, because I'm having too much fun in my sin. Woe to the one who prays this prayer in hypocrisy. But faith cries out to God. And it does so out of love for him. And out of a fear of displeasing him who has loved us so much. You who have undergone medical tests and have waited for the meeting with the doctor with the results, knowing very well that the reason for those tests is the suspicion of cancer, necessarily have a certain level of fear. That's natural, to have a certain level of fear for the diagnosis and the unknown that may follow. Love for God fears even more the diagnosis from that great physician. You have sinned against me. That underlies our prayer for forgiveness as we considered last Sunday. But that great love for God And the fear of offending him also underlies this petition for the spirit of holiness. 
In fact, a lack of longing for the spirit of holiness is indicative of one whose heart is not right with God. When we have heard the gospel, when we have seen the wonder of God's work in Christ's imputed righteousness, when we have laid hold by faith of that blessing of forgiveness and tasted the resulting consciousness of peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, we would have nothing rob us of that peace. We long for the day when we shall be made perfect. The cry for forgiveness cannot be real, except we also hate the sin for which we have prayed for forgiveness and strive to flee from it. So we pray and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now some of you remember what James wrote in his first epistle, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. So what do we mean when we pray as Jesus taught us and lead us not into temptation? Obviously that cannot contradict what the inspired James wrote. So let me call your attention to the fact that James did not say God will not lead us into temptation. He said he will not tempt us. God does not and cannot tempt us. So let's find a couple of examples in the Bible. One example is found near the end of the life of King David, when we read in 2 Samuel 24 that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he moved David to say, go number Israel and Judah. We're not told why the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, but the Lord led David in such a way that his faith would be tried. Not only would David be brought to remembrance of, the great, of his great authority as Israel's king, but the Lord would leave David to the corruption of his own nature and the pride of his own heart. But 1 Chronicles 21 verse 1 shows us it was Satan who tempted David. And Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. So we read in verse 2, And David said to Joab and to the rulers of the people, Go number Israel from Beersheba even to Dan, and bring the number of them to me that I may know it. Whatever may have been the sin in numbering the people, whether a matter of David's pride or an affront to God's promise to Abraham to gather his people 
as much as the sand upon the seashore, and so on. Joab understood that David's command to do so was wrong. So God even gave David warning through the mouth of Joab. And Joab answered, The Lord make his people in hundred times so many more as they be. But my lord the king, are they not all my lord's servants? Why then doth my lord require this thing? Why will he be a cause of trespass to Israel? And David refused the warning through the mouth of Joab and succumbed to the provocation of Satan. God very quickly gave David to understand that he had fallen and brought David to repentance, which involved his confession of sin and beseeching God for forgiveness, but the consequence of his sin was the death of 70,000 men in Israel. We can find another example in the life of Jesus where we read in Matthew 4 verse 1 Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. God by His Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness there to be tempted by the evil one. It isn't God who does the tempting. But as he leads us in our earthly sojourn, he might well lead us in a way where we face temptations of the devil himself, where our sinful nature is put to a sore test. And that's confirmed when we are taught to add the petition and deliver us from evil. The Catechism explains that this way, Do thou therefore preserve and strengthen us by the power of thy Holy Spirit, that we may not be overcome in the spiritual warfare, but constantly and strenuously may resist our foes, till at last we obtain a complete victory. Our plea, therefore, is that God does not lead us in a way where we might succumb to the attacks of Satan and his host, and in a way where we are left to our own devices, but that he delivers us from evil. There is a question concerning the evil referred to in this petition. The question is whether the evil referred to as evil in general, or if the reference is to the evil one. And that question is rooted in the Old Testament account of this prayer, where in the Greek language there's a definite article before the word evil. The evil. But whether it refers to the adverse circumstances in which the enemy assails us and from which we have no protection except God delivers us, 
or whether it refers to the person of the evil one, really makes no difference. The idea of temptation presupposes a personal tempter. So Ephesians 6 speaks of the devil and his hosts. In harmony with all scripture, it presents the devil as going about to deceive men and women and children, and a deceiver he is. The Bible speaks of him as a roaring lion, but also as one who takes on the appearance of an angel of light. In addition, as we saw in Ephesians 6 verse 12, the evil one leads a host who follow him in his evil deeds. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. But we not only have a powerful enemy, we stand before his wiles. Now bear in mind, the apostle is writing here from his own experience. He well knew this wrestling. He knew the necessity of putting on the whole armor of God in order to be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 11, he wrote concerning Satan, we are not ignorant of his devices. So Satan and his hosts use many different ways to attack us. So we pray for deliverance, not only from the evil one, but from his devices. From all that which would rob us of the sense of God's favor. Satan has but one central focus. And that is to bring discord into and to destroy Christ's church. That's his focus. Remember, the church in which you are members belongs to God's handiwork, his prized possessions in Christ. The devil's main tactic is to promote and produce confusion and trouble and chaos and sin so as to separate us from God. He would prevent us from seeing the wonder of our salvation in Jesus Christ, and he would entice us to sin, which interrupts the exercise of faith and destroys the sense of God's fellowship and favor. And to that end, the deceiver employs a very elaborate strategy using all the weapons at his disposal, as well as all his hopes. So at times he's very bold. He even confronts by temptation the very Son of God himself. And so we find him as a roaring lion. But the great characteristic of the devil is his subtlety. 
The term wiles is literally methods. Satan uses all kinds of methods to entice us to sin. And because the supreme gift of our creation is that of the mind, the devil concentrates his attacks upon the mind. We are told in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, for example, that it is the devil who blinds the minds of men to the truth of God. That's what Satan does. The men and women of this world boast that they are free thinkers. And the more brilliant their minds, the more pride they take in their knowledge and in their free thinking. Look at what the Bible tells us about that freedom of thought. The Bible tells us that the great accomplishment of the devil is that he has persuaded men and women to think that they are most free exactly when their thinking is most muddled and enslaved. They've been blinded by the gods of this world, the inspired apostle tells us. The the idols they've conceived in their own mind. But so Satan attacks our thinking. What do you think he was doing in Babylon with Daniel and his three friends who were subjected to Babylon's educational system? He was attempting to enslave their mind by removing God's truth from their education. But even when we keep our focus upon the word of God, the devil would sow doubts. He would call into question God's truth. We know, for example, that God works all things together for good, for us who love him, who are the called according to his purpose. He tells us that his word is truth. But when God sends trials into our lives, Satan is right there. Tempting us to doubt God's word, to question his wisdom, his ordering of our lives. When God tells us how he would have us live, Satan is always at hand even as he was with Eve, telling us, God didn't mean that. Even the warning we heard last week, from Mark 11, verses 25 and 26, and when ye stand praying, forgive, if ye have aught against any, that your Father which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if ye do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. The devil is right there to say, God didn't mean that. 
let me tell you, that would conflict with the truth of justification by faith alone. He preys upon the minds of men and makes God out to be a liar. Another example. Luke 16, verse 18. When Jesus said, Whosoever putteth away his wife and marrieth another committeth adultery. And whosoever marrieth her that is put away from her husband committeth adultery. Satan would make him to be a liar. Satan would say, that isn't what God means. After all, would God have you live in misery when you're married to one with whom you're not getting along? And after being married and your, your spouse leaves you, wouldn't God want you to, to live in the joy of marriage again? He wouldn't want you to live alone, would he? And the devil lays out arguments to contradict the plain teachings of the Word of God. He plays upon that poor me mentality that so easily afflicts us when we put self above the Word of God. That's the conflict waged against us by a relentless enemy. And in fear of falling and of offending the God who so loved us that he gave his own son to the death of the cross to reconcile us unto himself and to take us into the fellowship of his family, we plead, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The urgency of this petition is readily understood when we understand the weakness of our own sinful natures. Do you believe what the Catechism says when it states since we are so weak in ourselves that we cannot stand a moment. You believe that? This is the truth we confess by lifting up this petition. Our catechism reminds us in a footnote to this statement that it is evident the Lord gave us this petition because he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Psalm 103, verse 14. Our canons of Dort, in that beautiful fifth head of doctrine, which assures us of God's work in preserving his saints and therefore our perseverance, also unfolds this same truth. Let me read the first four articles of the fifth head of doctrine 
And if you want to follow along, it begins on page 73 in the back of the Psalter. And remind you that the canons of Dort are a further unfolding of the truth set forth in our Heidelberg Catechism as well as our Belgic Confession. And I think you will see that the articles that I am about to read are a further exposition of the very truth that we are considering this morning when it comes to the necessity and urgency of the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer. Article 1. Whom God calls according to his purpose to the communion of his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and regenerates by his Holy Spirit. He delivers also from the dominion and slavery of sin in this life, though not altogether from the body of sin and from the infirmities of the flesh, so long as they continue in this world. Article 2. Hence spring daily sins of infirmity, and hence spots adhere to the best works of the saints, which furnish them with constant matter for humiliation before God, and flying for refuge to Christ crucified, for mortifying the flesh more and more by the spirit of prayer and by holy exercises of piety, and for pressing forward to the goal of perfection, till being at length delivered from this body of death, they are brought to reign with the Lamb of God in heaven. Article 3. By reason of these remains of indwelling sin, and the temptations of sin and of the world, those who are converted could not persevere in a state of grace if left to their own strength. Notice that. Those who are converted could not persevere in a state of grace if left to their own strength. But God is faithful who having conferred grace, mercifully confirms and powerfully preserves them therein, even to the end. And then Article 4. Although the weakness of the flesh cannot prevail against the power of God, who confirms and preserves true believers in a state of grace, yet converts are not always so influenced and actuated by the Spirit of God, as not in some particular instances sinfully to deviate from the guidance of divine grace so as to be seduced by and comply with the lusts of the flesh. They must, therefore, be constant in watching and prayer, that they be not led into temptation. When these are neglected, watchfulness and prayer, when these are neglected, they are not only liable to be drawn into great and heinous sins by Satan, the world, and the flesh, but sometimes 
by the righteous permission of God, actually fall into these evils. This, the lamentable fall of David, Peter, and other saints described in Holy Scripture, demonstrates. We have to live in the awareness of what we are up against in order to sense the urgency of this sixth petition. Our mortal enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh, cease not to assault us. So the urgency of the sixth petition is expressed. Satan uses the world to entice us. He appeals to our own sinful flesh soon discovering the weaknesses that are peculiar to each of us. So this spiritual warfare in which we are engaged is even more intense than any physical warfare. In a physical war, we might be aware that the enemies are gathering troops for an invasion. Our country might have means to detect the peculiar methods of attack that the enemy is planning and to find their weapons of war. But this spiritual warfare takes place not only outside of us, within us. And the enemies approach us in ways that we sometimes are not even aware of. Because they're around us, even in the spiritual realm and in the clouds. The things of this world, the greatness and power of this world, are all under the influences of demonic devices in the attempt to bring us down as does our catechism. So the apostle in Ephesians 6 would have us understand we are no match to this enemy. He addresses us with this gospel call to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might to put on the whole armor of God because he knows our impotence our powerlessness over against the devil and his hopes. You understand that, don't you? There certainly is ample teaching in the Bible to press that truth upon your soul. We are in a fierce battle against a very cunning and powerful enemy. Human willpower? Not even in this battle. Principles of morality are not enough. Satan would have you think that so long as you live a good life, there's a special place in heaven for you. If you believe in that, you you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. There is only one way to overcome in this battle. 
It is by faith in Christ's blood. Faith which also reaches out with the plea and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That is, do thou preserve and strengthen us by the power of thy Holy Spirit. Give us the spirit of holiness, the spirit of the victorious indwelling Christ, our Savior. Preserve and strengthen us by the power of thy Holy Spirit that we may not be overcome in the spiritual warfare, but constantly and strenuously may resist our foes till at last we obtain a complete victory. Notice, too, that this faith which lays hold of our Savior and pleads for the spirit of holiness to work in us is a faith which also comes to expression by constantly and strenuously resisting our foes. Whosoever speaks of faith solely as a passive instrument by which God saves us and we rest only upon Christ, whosoever denies faith as that which is also brought to activity in us by the Holy Spirit through the Word is a teacher of false doctrine. The Scripture teaches Throughout, that it is by faith in Jesus Christ, and only by faith, that we are engaged in the battle. Our strength is only in the Lord and in the power of his might. The confidence for this petition is expressed by our Heidelberg Catechism in its treatment of the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer. Question and answer 128. How dost thou conclude thy prayer? For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That is, all these things we ask of thee, because thou being our king and almighty, art willing and able to give us all good. And all this we pray for, that thereby not we, but thy holy name may be glorified forever. In the face of the battle, and while recognizing the intensity of the battle, we are not defeatists. In the church world of our day, attention is rarely called to the spiritual battle. The confession, since we are so weak in ourselves that we cannot stand a moment, is rarely heard, let alone confessed. The antithesis between light and darkness between the church and the world is not preached and therefore is not lived. It is, it is ironic 
that those living in denial of the intensity of the spiritual battle we face would accuse us of being defeatists, pessimists. Beloved, seeing what we are up against and casting ourselves upon him who alone can save us is not pessimistic. While those who have rejected the antithesis watch their children fall away, we are fully engaged in this spiritual battle. You are, aren't you? But we are fully engaged, knowing by faith him to whom we belong. And in our Lord Jesus Christ, in our victorious Savior, we belong to him whose is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. How terrible is this doxology of the Lord's Prayer for the wicked, for those who have not life in Christ Jesus. They set themselves against the Lord and against his anointing. But their self-deception is soon to be exposed by him who rules over all and whose judgment is true and inescapable. We pray as those victorious. Because we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. You do, don't you? This is our confidence then, not only in praying the sixth petition, this is our confidence in the entirety of our prayer. And that the Catechism recognizes when it says, All these we ask of thee, because thou, being our King and Almighty, are willing and able to give us all good. He is our King for Jesus' sake. This then is our confidence because we know that in answering our prayers and in his faithful care for us, his people, God glorifies his holy name in revealing the wonder work of his grace in Christ alone. And finally, that confidence is affirmed by the amen of our prayer. What doth the word amen signify? Amen signifies it shall truly and certainly be, for my prayer is more assuredly heard of God than I feel in my heart that I desire these things of him. The confidence expressed with the amen is a confidence not just for the sixth petition and its spiritual safety, but for all that we have asked of God in our prayers. With our prayers, as an expression of our faith, we lift up our desires unto God. But we do so very much hindered by our own sinfulness. And therefore, very imperfectly, we have seen in our consideration of each of the petitions how difficult it is for us to pray as Jesus taught us. Thankfully, God's answer does not depend 
on how perfectly we express our prayers. He answers hearing the intercession of his Son on our behalf. That's why our assurance of being heard is more certain than we feel in our hearts that we desire these things of him. Psalm 115 speaks of the idol gods of the heathen. They have ears, but they hear not. But our God has eyes to see and ears to hear. And so the psalm tells us in verses 11 through 15, Ye that fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord hath been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless them that fear the Lord, both small and great. And by faith, he has so worked that in our hearts. We know it. So, together with his entire church, we say, Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, in humility we address thee as our Father, knowing that thou art exalted far above us, the God of heaven and earth, whose is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. We thank thee for the gospel, thy word of grace and love to us who are in Christ Jesus. We thank thee for the forgiveness of our sins in the blood of thine only begotten Son, for the faith by which we lay hold of him, in whom alone we are justified, and by whom we are reconciled unto thee. We thank thee for the privilege of approaching thee in prayer, and for teaching us how to pray, in the assurance that thou dost hear us. Bless thy word upon our hearts, and bind us together as thy people. Return us here this evening as we have the privilege of thy fellowship and worship once again, and as we desire to hear thy word to us. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.